Now we're going to embark on a brief series of messages from Paul's letter to the Philippians entitled, Whatever Happens. It's a nice generic title, that, isn't it? And it's rather all-embracing. Simple fact of the matter is this. Stuff happens. Sometimes it happens because we do it. But other times it happens because it is done to us. If stuff happens because we do it, then, of course, it is our actions that precipitate things. If stuff happens to us, then, of course, it is our reactions that count. The Apostle Paul seems to be saying in this particular passage of Scripture, whatever happens, that the way that we react to the things that happen in our lives is important. So let me read to you from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. This is what he said. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. You'll notice then that the apostle is giving instructions to the Philippian church here, and he is saying, in effect, whatever happens, stand firm. Whatever happens, stand firm. Actions and reactions. One of the interesting things about our reactions is that very often they are intuitive, they are instinctive, they are not premeditated. The reason for that is rather obvious. Things happen so quickly, we have no idea that they're going to come our way, and so we react without having time to think about it. Very often, our reactions are indicative of what we have already built in to our lives. And therefore, it is worthwhile not only for us to sit down on occasion and evaluate our actions. Why did I do that? What made me decide to do that? What were the principles upon which I did that? What is the philosophy that led me to do that? What is my belief system that led me to do that? It's valuable to do that, but it's also valuable to sit down and look at your reactions. Why did I react the way that I did? And what does it tell me about what is going on inside me? For our reactions do show what is already inside. Let me give you an example of this. A lady was sitting in her home one day. There was suddenly a screech of brakes, then a resounding crash, total silence for a couple of seconds, and then a loud thump on the veranda of her home. She rushed outside to see what had happened. A motorcyclist had collided with a school bus. The force of the impact had thrown him off his bike over the fence, across her yard, and he landed with a sickening crunch on her veranda. And there he lay, motionless and bleeding. Immediately, she remembered her first aid training and quickly put her head between her knees so that she wouldn't faint. (laughs) 
now that is one reaction to a set of circumstances. And it says some rather interesting things about the lady, which we will not analyze at this particular point. I think, however, you will agree with me that our reactions say quite a lot about the kind of people that we are. Now, as far as Paul is concerned, he says, I want you to make sure whatever happens, that you conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel and that you stand firm in the situations that come your way. Well, what kind of situations did the Apostle Paul have in mind, do you think? Well, we don't have to guess, and we do know that he was not functioning in a vacuum. He was dealing with real-life situations. Let me identify a few of them for you. You will notice, for instance, in this first chapter, that he mentions on more than one occasion that he is in chains, that he is in prison. Now, we are not certain which imprisonment, because he was imprisoned on more than one occasion, we're not sure which imprisonment he is referring to here. Some think it was the, in Caesarea, others think it was in Rome, some suggest that perhaps it was in Ephesus. The body of opinion, however, suggests that it was the Roman uh, imprisonment towards the end of his life and ministry. Be that as it may, he has now got himself in a situation where he is at the mercy of the political system of the day. It is a pretty cruel system. It's a pretty relentless system. And in actual fact, he was finally executed by the authorities under whose control he was sitting at that time, literally in chains. So one thing we can say about Paul, as he's saying, whatever happens, stand firm, is this. He finds himself in a political situation that is not particularly to his liking. And it is going to exert phenomenal pressure upon him. In fact, it is an extremely dangerous situation. But his response to that is presumably because he's telling the others to do it, and he usually practiced what he preaches. His response to it was, whatever happens, stand firm. In other words, whatever the political environment might be in which you find yourself, your mandate is to stand firm and conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. I have many dear friends who grew up under the communist regime, a political system that was inimical to their Christian profession. But the thing that is so wonderful about them is this, whatever happens, they seem to be able to cope with it and they stand firm. Now, our circumstances obviously differ. It may be that we uh, live in a circumstance where we don't particularly like the political system, but that's probably as far as it goes. But whatever happens, Paul says, stand firm. The second thing that you need to notice that Paul is talking about here is that he not only was subjected to political situations, but he was also subject on occasion to natural disasters. He went to Philippi originally to speak after an interesting set of circumstances. He had been ministering in Asia Minor. While he was there, he had been a little unsure of which way to go next. He tried a number of things, none of which worked out. One day, getting rather discouraged about this, he had a vision. The vision was of a man from Macedonia who said to him in the vision, come over and help us. 
And so he had determined that that was what he should do. He immediately got on a ship. They sailed without any trouble over to Macedonia. And very quickly, they arrived in the city of Philippi, a strategic city on one of the main roads that led, of course, to Rome. This particular decision to go to Philippi was of critical significance. In fact, I believe, in a sense, it changed the history of the human race. Because when Paul went to Philippi, he took the gospel to Europe. And because the gospel came to Europe and spread throughout Europe and eventually throughout the Western world, the Western world, to a very large extent, became the world it is because of the profound influence of Christianity. You look at the rest of the world where it isn't there, it's an entirely different world. Try to imagine what our world would be like if the gospel had headed east instead of heading west. Well, that was the critical juncture of what happened when Paul arrived in Philippi. But within a very short time, he is beaten up by the authorities. He's thrown in jail. But his attitude is, well, whatever happens, even though they throw you in jail, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ and stand firm. Well, he and his friend not only stood firm, they decided to have a praise and worship session in their cell. And while they were doing that, there was an almighty earthquake. And the city of Philippi began literally to collapse all around them. Now, I've been to Philippi on a number of occasions, and there is ample evidence of numerous earthquakes in that particular area. In fact, once when we were in that area of Macedonia, there were earthquakes at the time. It is a very scary situation. I was not, not in an actual earthquake, Although when I was in Japan last time, somebody told me the safest place in an earthquake is in a bamboo grove. And so I said, well, I'll try to remember that. And whenever I find myself in an earthquake, I will look for the nearest bamboo grove. And I'll give you that information at no extra charge. It may come in useful sometime. Here he is in an earthquake. The whole place is collapsing all around him. And his attitude is this, whatever happens... Whatever happens, stand firm. Now, you probably haven't been in too many natural disasters, but they are unnerving. The point is simply to show that the Apostle Paul is not speaking as if he's writing a doctoral thesis in an ivory tower in a seminary somewhere. He is talking about down-to-earth situations. He tells the Philippians in his letter here, in the third chapter, that there are going to be some people who are going to cause them all kinds of problems. And he is not particularly complimentary of these people. Chapter 3, verse 2, this is what he says about them. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. What he's pointing out here is something that they needed to be aware of, and we need to be aware of too. And that is that sometimes you will come up against people who have profoundly significant ideological differences with you. Now, you may sometimes be finding difficulty with the political scene. It may be that you're facing natural disasters. More likely, you're running into people who profoundly disagree with your principles of life. It may be that they bring very compelling arguments. 
It could be that they offer you some very, very seductive suggestions. It could be that you find yourself being drawn ideologically, spiritually, philosophically in a direction you've never been before. The Apostle Paul says, stand firm. Whatever happens, whether it be ideological, whether it be natural, whether it be political, and make sure that as you stand firm, you do it in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. He talks about his friend Epaphroditus in chapter 2. Obviously a very special man. He calls him in verse 25, my brother, a fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. But this is what he says about Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is distressed because you heard he was ill. He wasn't distressed because he was ill. He was distressed because he was worried that people might be worried because he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, says Paul, and he almost died. Well, that's life, folks. There are times when you will actually come up with the situation that you have to confront, that you will face physiological and physical problems. How do we react to them? Paul says, whatever happens, whatever happens, whether it be physical, whether it be ideological, whether it be political, whether it be natural, whatever happens, the important thing is stand firm and conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's worth pointing out at this juncture, of course, that there really are only two sets of circumstances that we have to learn to cope with. Paul tells us what they are in the first chapter. He puts it this way. He says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The two eventualities that will come our way, the two possibilities that we confront every day of our lives are very, very simple. Today, I will either live or die. That's it, folks. Today, I will either live or die. Therefore, whatever happens, whether you are facing living, whether you're facing dying, stand firm. Because of this, Psalm 23, verse 6, is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. This is what Psalm 23, verse 6 says. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So what's Psalm 23, verse 6 about? All the days of my life. And what else? Forever. Pray tell me, what else is there? What can you add to all the days of your life and forever? In fact, if the only two things we have to deal with are living and dying, doesn't Psalm 23 verse 6 deal with it all in a nutshell? And the answer is yes. It is when we grasp what the Scriptures say on these subjects that we begin to know what it is to stand firm whatever happens. Notice something else that comes along that certainly happened as far as Paul was concerned. There were two ladies in the church at Philippi and they were getting after each other. They were getting into a real argument with each other and uh, he says to them, I plead with you, O dear, and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. And yes, I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women etc., etc. Now, we don't know who this brave man was who Paul is telling to get between these two women. 
But I'm sure Paul was happy that he was in prison and didn't have to do it himself. I mean, you Odeon Syntyche, they are really scratching each other's eyes out. They're getting into a real bounty at this particular place. And Paul says, hey, look, sometimes we get ourselves into relational problems, don't we? Now, when you get yourself into a real relational fight, it can begin to take over your life. And as it begins to take over your life, you will find yourself reacting in this relational situation. Well, the thing you've got to do is make sure that your reaction in relational strife is a reaction where you stand firm and demonstrate the fact, what? That you are committed to the gospel of Christ. So you see that Paul is talking about very, very practical issues. Right at the end of the epistle, he talks about the fact that there were times when he was basically broke, didn't have any money, didn't know where his next meal was coming from. And if it hadn't been for the Philippians bailing him out, humanly speaking, he doesn't know which way he would have gone. Because sometimes you can get yourself into financial problems. Now look at the list of things here. Financial, relational, physical, ideological, natural, political possibilities. They're all here in Philippians. So when the Apostle Paul talks about whatever happens, he's he's not thinking in terms of some airy, fairy, esoteric theological concepts. He is talking about down-to-earth, nitty-gritty living. And what he says is, whatever happens, stand firm. Well, that's basically what I wanted to say, and there's a little time left, so let me amplify it a little further. <laughs> you knew I was going to anyway. It's all right saying, okay, well, you've got to stand firm, but how do we do that sort of thing? We find ourselves with all these, these real problems. What can we do to factor into our lives the ability to stand firm? Let me give you an illustration here. Some of you will remember from your college days having to read the book called The Odyssey. And some of you have been trying to forget it ever since. And others of you never read it, and so you've no idea what I'm talking about. Well, let me just give you a quick rundown on The Odyssey. It's all about a man called Odysseus, or Ulysses. He was a Greek, and he went to fight the Trojans, the Trojans who lived in Troy. And you remember, they got inside a wooden horse and and they went in and and overthrew Troy. And then they turned to go home. Well, according to Greek mythology, the, the gods were upset about this. So they decided to give them a rough journey home. And the Odyssey is about the journey home. It took Odysseus 10 years to get home. Well, in the course of his journey, he ran into all kinds of problems. One time, he was going past a place where there were some maidens who used to sing very, very beautiful songs. These sailors who were you know, sort of rather susceptible to beautiful maidens who sing beautiful songs anyway, they had a tendency to be lured onto the rocks by these maidens called the sirens. So Odysseus knew that this was going to happen to his sailors, and so he got wax and he stuck it in their ears. Usually we have to do the opposite, but we won't get into that now. And he stuck wax into their ears so they couldn't hear what was going on. Now, for some strange reason, he didn't want his own ears full of wax, but he didn't want to be lured onto the rocks by the sirens. And so he insisted that they tie him to the mast. 
and they lashed him to the mast so that he would stand firm when these seductive voices were possibly going to lure him onto the rocks. Immediately after that, he had to go through a very narrow strait between Scylla and Caribis. Scylla was a big, smooth rock that was littered with the wrecks of ships. Caribis was a huge whirlpool. If he got too close to the whirlpool because he was staying away from the rock, he could be sucked into the whirlpool. If he stayed away from the whirlpool, he was in danger of running aground on the rock. So he was between Scylla and Caribis. But he realized that all these things that were happening to him, whether it was the sirens or whether it was Scylla or whether it was Caribis, all these things that could happen to him, what he had to do was stand firm. And so he lashed himself to that which was secure and would hold him. Sisters and brothers, there are certain things that you can tie yourself to that you can anchor yourself in that will allow you to stand firm. Now, Philippians chapter 1 will tell us what some of these things are. I'll have to touch on them quite quickly. First of all, we stand firm whatever happens by developing a Christian attitude to life and death. Now, notice very carefully what I'm saying here. We stand firm by developing a Christian attitude to life and death. We need to prepare ourselves for whatever happens by understanding what life's about and understanding what death's about. Now notice what Paul says, verse 21 of the first chapter. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. All right? Paul is confronting life and death. And this is his Christian attitude to life and death. Listen very, very carefully. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. There you have one of the most profound, succinct statements in literature. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What does it mean? Well, let me suggest to you that when Paul says, for to me to live is Christ, he is saying, in effect, that he understands that Christ is the very bedrock of his life. Christ is the very core of his existence. Christ is the one who is his Savior. Christ is the one who is the Lord of his life. Christ is the one whom he believes is in control of his life, and who will oversee his death, and Christ is the one to whom he has committed his eternal destiny. Christ is his beginning, Christ is his end, and in between, Christ is the dynamic, the source, the empowerment of his being. Christ is his goal, Christ is his love, Christ is his life. 
That's a Christian attitude, sisters and brothers. Now, he says, uh, I have to be perfectly frank about this. There are a whole lot of things about this life that are not particularly present, like being in prison, like being lashed with lashes, like being broke, like being bitten by snakes, like being hungry, like being adrift on a piece of driftwood uh, after you've been shipwrecked. All these things had happened to him. There are many unpleasant things happening to him in the churches. People are ripping his reputation. They're maligning him. They're accusing him of all kinds of things. In in actual fact, he could have said, life is very unpleasant. Perhaps he might even have been tempted to use the vernacular and say, life's a real bummer. Uh, Well, the reality of it is this. He says, Christ is my life, but all these things happen anyway. Now he says, one day I will die. And when I die, that will be to my advantage. Now you say, how in the world could that be? Surely dying is the biggest loss. It's the biggest tragedy. It's the final enemy. It's the thing we all detest. It's the thing that we all dread. It's the thing that we all try with all our might and main to resist. How in the world can death be my gain? And he says, well, think about it. If Christ is your life, but it also includes all kinds of unpleasant things, one day when you die, you'll be with Christ without all the unpleasant things. All the sickness, all the pain, all the anguish, no more snakes, no more shipwreck, no more hungry, no more adrift on the ocean, no more maligning, no more abuse, no more of all the bad stuff of life. It will simply be Christ. If Christ is my life with a lot of unpleasant stuff and death is Christ without the unpleasant stuff, then Christ is my life and death is my gain. When you get that mentality, you begin to face whatever happens with a certain degree of equanimity. For you begin to understand life and death from a Christian perspective. Now he says, (laughs) I don't know which to choose. He said, I'm torn two ways. He said, it's wonderful if I can go on living because I can experience Christ. Not only that, my experience of Christ is overflowing in rich benefit to all you people. He said, it's wonderful to be alive. It's exciting to be alive. It's thrilling to experience Christ and to make him known. He said, I really want to stay. But he said, on the other hand, what a relief it will be to be rid of all the downside and be released into all the fullness of glory and experience of Christ. I don't know which to choose, to be or not to be, which reminds me, we've had a little bit of Greek mythology. Let's have some Shakespeare. You remember your Hamlet, don't you? You remember the Prince of Denmark? The Prince of Denmark was a very unhappy young man. He was very unhappy because his father had died. He was very unhappy because his mother had quickly remarried. And he was even more unhappy because of the man she had remarried. He detested this man. One day in a deep fit of melancholy and depression, he was walking on the battlements of Elsinore Castle in Denmark and he meets the ghosts of his father, clad in armor. 
the ghost begins to speak to him and tells him to his amazement and his horror that his father did not die a natural death. He was poisoned. And he was poisoned by the man who married his mother. And he slips even deeper into anger and rage and depression. And he begins to speak out of the depths of his melancholy. And he says, how weary, stale, flat and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. And he begins to slip so far into discouragement and depression that he contemplates suicide. And this is what he says, to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come? When we have shuffled off this mortal coil, what then must give us pause? I'll translate that into American English. And what he's saying is this. It would be wonderful to be rid of all this. Oh, just to be able to sleep, just to be able to dream, just to be able to get away from all this stuff. But then he said, but what would come in those dreams? What happens when we shuffle off this mortal coil? What kind of things will we discover at that particular point? And he begins to realize that for him, life is unbearable, but death is unthinkable. And so from the depth of his soul, he says, to be or not to be? That is the question. You didn't know that in my other life, I was a Shakespearean actor, did you? <laughs> That's all I can remember. But remember, here's the point. Here's the point. As far as Hamlet is concerned, there are two possibilities. Being or not being. To go on living is unthinkable. To die is unacceptable. He is torn between the two and neither is acceptable. And Paul says to be or not to be, that's the question. To be, Christ is my life. Not to be, death is my gain. It's all in his hands. And because it's in his hands, I lash myself to the secure mast of his benevolent control. And as I rest in that benevolent lordship, secure that whether I live or whether I die, whatever happens, I can stand firm and conduct myself in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, there are a whole lot more things here. I don't have time to get into them. You can study them for yourself. Let me just identify one more for you and then I'll let you go. Notice that he says, not that he, he conducts himself in a manner worthy of Christ, that he conducts himself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. What's the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news that God in Christ came into the world and died in order that our sins might be forgiven. And it's all because of grace, not because of what we deserve. The gospel is all about grace and it's all about sacrifice. Now says the Apostle Paul, whatever happens... Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of a gospel that's all about grace and all about sacrifice. So, whatever happens, learn to react with grace. Whatever happens, learn to react with a sacrificial spirit. And if you do that, you'll stand firm.
Oh, he says one other thing. He said, always remember this, that you were given two gifts. One gift was the gift of being able to believe in Christ. And the other gift was the privilege of suffering for Christ. Two gifts. It was granted unto you to believe. It was granted unto you the privilege of suffering for Christ. So whatever happens, don't be surprised. You're filling up the sufferings of Christ. Whatever happens, respond in grace and with a sacrificial attitude because that's what the gospel's all about. And whatever happens, stand firm because you know that if you go on living, Christ is your life. And if the worst thing that happens can happen and you die, then death will be your gain. So the message really is this. Whatever happens, stand firm. It's a rather short message, isn't it? I'm just sorry it took so long. <laughs> Let's pray together. Now, Lord, our circumstances differ from those of Paul and Epaphroditus. The political system under which we live, the kind of travel arrangements that we have, the financial arrangements that we have, the society of which we're part, all very different. And yet, at root, We've all got to learn how to live and we've all got to learn how to die. And so our prayer is this, that we might be able to stand firm because we have taken our stand in your saving benevolent lordship, that we are lashing ourselves to the mast of your purpose. And when the whirlpools come on the left and the smooth rocks of disaster on the right, and the tempting sounds of other possibilities fill our ears. Help us, dear Lord, to be building into our lives those things that will enable us to stand firm and so conduct ourselves that we will adorn the gospel of Christ. You've given us the challenge of being alive in these days. We thank you for the challenge. We thank you for the privilege. And we ask that through your grace, we may be able to say, for to me to live is Christ. Amen.